Thanks, Pastor Nathan. Good morning, church. Uh, if you missed that, Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. We are, if you're new with us, we're in this series called Joy Unleashed, looking at the letter of Paul to the Philippians. We've been doing that last week. We'll do it this week. I'll take a little break from that next week. If you know the name John Miller, he will be here. John is, uh, was on staff here at Harvest, is a dear friend uh, of our church, and so excited to have him here next week to open up God's Word. And then in the two weeks following that, we will round out uh, this series, this letter to the Philippians. So looking forward to all of that and grateful to have the opportunity to be together under the authority of God's Word this morning. Amen? Amen. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9 is where we'll be. You can be turning there. And as you're doing so, I want to bring your memory back to 2014, almost 10 years ago now. Can you believe it? 2014, there was a song written for an animated movie called Despicable Me 2. And uh, this song became an absolute worldwide sensation. It became the song of the year. It was a massive deal. I'd sing it, but that's no good for anybody. So let me, let me bring it to your memory. Let's listen to it together for a second. That's good. That you, I, I saw some of you were grooving. You guys remember that song, right? That's Happy by Pharrell, right? A great song, absolutely phenomenal song. Like I said, it took the world by storm. There was a state in America that wanted to change their state song to that one. I mean, it was a big deal. Now, and now, if you remember, if you remember Despicable Me 2, if you saw it, that song comes on when Gru, the main character, who's actually a villain, it comes on when he experiences love. He gets that kiss on the cheek from Lucy and, and everything changes for him, right? He's, he's dancing in the streets. He's, he's making his daughter's uh, heart-shaped pancakes. He's, he's throwing Frisbees with people. He's helping little baby ducks across the street. I mean, I mean, this evil and despicable person is changed completely when love comes into his life. Gru feels the reality of the lyrics to the bridge of that song, which, which says, can't nothing bring me down. My level's too high. Can't nothing bring me down. And as, as I rewatched that scene while I was preparing for the sermon this week, uh, yes, Despicable Me Too made it into the sermon prep, okay? <laughs> as I rewatched that, as I listened to that song, it made me think, man, that sounds an awful lot like the gospel, doesn't it? And that song sounds an awful lot like what Paul says in our passage this morning at the beginning of verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. That sounds an awful lot like the way the gospel affects and impacts every part of who we are and everything that we experience because we, evil and despicable people in our sin, are changed completely when we experience the love of God through Christ the Son. We'll see this morning in God's word the realities of what happens when the gospel changes us. Because that's what the good news of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection does. If you believe in a gospel that saves you, then you believe in a gospel that changes you. And this morning from God's word, we'll see that there is joy. There is deep and abiding and, and supernatural delight to be found in gospel conduct. 
So let's turn our attention to God's Word now, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. Follow along with me as I read. This is God's Word to us this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What we see here is is four things that naturally come from Paul's exhortations, from, from Paul's commands given to the Philippians in these verses. If the gospel has changed me, here's what we're going after, if the gospel has changed me, I will be first joyful no matter what. I'll be joyful no matter what. The theme of joy is is pervasive in Paul's letter to the Philippian believers. Some 16 times in this letter alone, Paul mentions joy or the active version of it, rejoicing. I mean, that's why we called this series Joy Unleashed. So so what Paul says here in verse four, it's not new for the Philippians. It shouldn't be new for us. So why why does he say it again? Why does he repeat twice in this verse the command to actively have joy in your life? Because we need to hear it. And we need to hear it over and over and over again. The Philippians did, and so do we. I mean, there are so many things in our lives that suck the joy out of us. There are distractions There's divisions, there's burdens, there's challenges. I know many of your stories, not all of them, I know many. I I see your prayer requests every week. I know there's a lot of you here today that are carrying heavy burdens. I know that there are a few of you here who are carrying challenges into this place this morning that are taking the joy out of your life. The Lord has something for you to hear today. Because the Philippians had that too. There were a lot of things that they were facing that threatened their joy. I mean, Paul, the guy that's writing this letter to them is doing so from prison. That's a threat to their joy. The guy that God used to start this church, the guy that God used to proclaim the gospel that saved many of them, he's in chains in Rome. I mean, no doubt that, that caused some of them to question what it was that they were doing. Is this what I want? Does this mean I'm going to go to prison? I'm sure this made it harder for them to, to proclaim the gospel. Wait a minute, isn't that Paul guy in prison? I don't want any part of that. It's a threat to their joy. They had opponents. Paul says in, in chapter 1, verse 28, the, the Philippians had opponents. We don't know what specifically those opponents were, were challenging them on, but they had p- opponents. Paul says, don't don't be afraid of them. That's a threat to their joy. They had people challenging them. They had conflict in the church. We talked about this last week, first part of chapter four. 
There, there was a, di- a division. There was a disagreement between these two women in the church, these critically important women there we established last week. That, that's a threat to their joy. They face challenges internally. They face challenges externally. But in light of all of that, in light of Paul's own personal challenges, he commands them, rejoice in the Lord. George Mueller um, was a German evangelist who lived in the 19th century. He is famously known for a lot of the work that he did for orphans in England in the 1800s. He said this famously, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. That's what Paul's getting at here. The attitude of our lives as people changed by the gospel should be that we rejoice, we have joy always. That we would have a deep and abiding supernatural delight in the things of God, no matter what comes in my life, based on the fact that I am changed through the good news of Jesus Christ. See, joy comes in your life like, not because of circumstances. Joy doesn't come because of, of the things that you have or the things that you don't have. Joy comes in your life when the reference point for all that you are and do is the fact that you deserve hell. When you recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ has gotten rid of your biggest problem, That because of your sin, there is a chasm of separation between you and the God who created and loves you. And it's only by virtue of the work that Jesus has done that that chasm is bridged. When you recognize that you have been delivered from all that you rightfully deserve, judgment, punishment, separation from God, and you have been bestowed with blessings and promises and privileges that are yours in Jesus Christ, joy naturally results. Because God has taken care of our greatest problem through the gospel. And every problem that we face can be faced with joy. Jesus has done what I could not do. What no amount of my effort, my energy, my works could accomplish. He has taken my place. His blood has cleansed me from my sin. It's forgiven me, redeemed me, reconciled me, justified me. In the eyes of God, I am righteous because of what Christ has done. I've received far more than I could ever deserve and to understand that, is to see joy naturally come in your life. Because you have the truth that God is in control. Your joy is secure in the fact that you are secure in Christ. Jesus Christ who said, John 27 to 29, my sheep, John 10, 27 to 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Burdened heart today. Downcast soul here this morning. Broken spirit. If you are in Christ, you are secure in his hand. You are secure in the hand of the Father. And no one and nothing can separate you from that. Christian, how can you not read that and not be filled with joy? This is your reality in the Lord. He secures you perfectly and completely so your joy can be secure in Him. Joy comes not from fleeting pleasures and circumstances, but from a deep confidence and conviction in the things of the Lord. So you can rejoice always because you are in the Lord. Now, let me make that clear, make something clear here. That does not mean that we won't have sorrow. That does not mean that we won't have pain or hardship. But the more that we're secure in the realities of the Lord in our lives, the more that we live out the hard attitude that George Mueller described or that we live every day delighting ourselves in the Lord. The more we focus on the truths of who we are in Him, the more that we can live like Paul. Who said in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that I can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I can experience the depth of hurt and pain and hardship that comes from being a part of the sin-sick world that we live in, but I can face all of it knowing what is true of me in the gospel, and more importantly, knowing what is true about the Lord and the promises He gives to us. Because the depth of salvation and security and strength in the Lord is endless. That is a well that will never run dry. And so we can mourn and we can weep and we can struggle with joy in the Lord always, no matter what. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul goes on, again, I will say, that word in the original language, that phrase in the original language, I will say means I will go on saying again and again and again and again. I will go on and on and on and on, no matter what, saying rejoice. Live with joy. Rejoice. Is that you? Is that the reality of your life today? Because if the gospel has changed me, if the good news of Christ's coming on my behalf has gotten rid of, has solved my greatest problem, then I can be joyful no matter what because no situation that I find myself in is outside the help that the Lord can provide. 
No depth of hurt or hardship is too great for the wonders of the gospel to infiltrate them and to help us to live with hope and joy, to endure the difficulty. Knowing the realities that aren't ours anymore and that are ours now in Christ. That are ours forevermore through Him. You see, if we live like that, if we live with joy no matter what, then that leads to this secondly. If the gospel has changed me, then I will be gentle with everyone. I'll be gentle with everyone. Now, now, uh, Bible translators differ on, on how to approach the word reasonableness. Paul writes in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Uh, the Christian standard Bible uses graciousness there. Uh, the NIV and, and other translations use gentleness. And uh, with all due respect to, to the well-seasoned and, and way smarter than me Bible translators, I, with my wealth of experience and knowledge, that's a joke, you're allowed to laugh, it's okay. I would agree more with the NIV translation of gentleness, and so that's what I use here in the outline. You'll notice that any ESV holders in the room, don't worry, I'm not slamming them. They, they cover their bases. You'll notice a little note down at the bottom of your page that says, or gentleness there. But regardless, the point here is, as people changed by the gospel, we are to have a spirit of gentleness in how we deal with everyone, believers and unbelievers alike. What does that look like? Well, David, Gar David Garland in his commentary writes, gentleness puts up with other people's faults and when provoked will not seek revenge. It is a spirit that is open, conciliatory, and trusting of one's neighbor and it is the opposite of being contentious and self-seeking. And that's how we're supposed to be acting to both believers and unbelievers alike. You see, this, this is important. This, this spirit of gentleness is important in the church because we're going to have conflicts with one another. We talked about it last week, right? There was a conflict going on in the Philippian church. Yodia and Syndicate had a disagreement. And so, so gentleness would have us seek to, in humility and grace toward one another, meet in the middle. Right? We come together, we, we set ourselves and our wants and our desires aside, and for the good of gospel unity, Seek to resolve the issue together, surrendering my desires for that of my brother or sister in Christ. This is a you-before-me mindset. That's gentleness in the church. But unbelievers outside the church need to see our gentleness as well because we differ decidedly from the culture that, we're, that we live in. Have you noticed that? Are you awake 11 o'clock? Let's try that again. We differ decidedly from the culture that we live in. Have you noticed that? Yeah, like understatement of the year, George. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. We, met, we differ on our view of, of marriage, of gender, uh, of sex, uh, of how to raise our kids, of, of how to prioritize the entirety of our lives. I mean, I could go on and on and on here, but we need to hold firm to our convictions based on what the authority of God's word says. That is, that, that's a non-negotiable, but we need to do so with gentleness because we don't need to give the world any further reason to hate us. But not only that, we, we do this, we have this spirit of gentleness because that's how Jesus did it. The only place in all of the Gospels that Jesus describes himself is Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, where he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. We see that in Jesus all throughout the Gospels, don't we? 
way he moves toward people with gentleness. It's a command. Have a spirit of gentleness because that's how our Savior lived while he was here. Gentleness must be a trait of those changed by the gospel, a critical part of gospel conduct because it is a primary aspect of the character of Jesus. So, are you a gentle person? Would your family and friends, believer or not, call you gentle? Is this your reputation? The reason for this, the why, other than the fact that it was emulated for us in Jesus Christ, Paul goes on to say in verse 5, the Lord is at hand. We have a spirit of gentleness because Jesus is coming back soon. And he is coming as a judge expecting us to be doing this, and so we do it. You might say to yourself, soon, the Lord is at hand. I mean, he hasn't been here for 2,000 years. Well, don't forget, a day to the Lord is a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is as a day. The Lord Jesus is coming back soon. And 19th century, a Bible commentator, John Lightfoot, wrote about this in this way, bear with others now that God may bear with you then. Jesus is coming back soon. He will burst in suddenly like a thief in the night, he says of himself in Matthew chapter 24. Paul says of him in 1 Thessalonians 5. And so whether you are alive for that or not, whenever Jesus comes back, be found with the spirit of gentleness. The third reality of gospel conduct, if the gospel has changed me, I will be, see this next, praying away anxiety. Now, before we uh, get into this, I just want to say that I recognize that a topic like this is fraught with pitfalls. I know that this is a hot-button topic for many people today. I know many of you struggle with this. And so I want to be very careful here at the outset to say that I hope you see my own spirit of gentleness as we handle this and my own humility to say that these are not my words. This is what God's Word has to say about this. And hope that he reveals those things to you because far too many professing believers are suffering under the crushing weight of anxiety when they have no business being under it. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we need to start here in our understanding of this. The word that Paul uses here in verse 6 for anxious is the same word in the original language that he uses in chapter 2, verse 20, when he's talking about Timothy and specifically the fact that Paul says, I have no one like him, Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The word that Paul uses for concerned in chapter 2, verse 20 is the same that he uses here in chapter 4, verse 6. So how do we reconcile the fact that Paul speaks positively of Timothy's genuine anxiety, we could translate that verse, but then also commands us here to not be anxious about anything in chapter four. And that's because, I think we need to establish this first, there is a difference between what we could say is good anxiety and bad anxiety. 
or the other titles we might give, there's a difference between concerned anxiety and crushing anxiety. Let's parse this out a little bit. Christians should have some level of concerned anxiety. Timothy was concerned for the Philippians' welfare in their pursuit of the Lord. Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says that he is anxious for the churches. And this is speaking of a genuine, heartfelt, loving concern for them as the churches get established. So let's bring it into our world here for a second. The elders of this church and Pastor Todd, our lead pastor, I know personally, have a level of genuine concern for you. I have a level of genuine concern, we could say concerned anxiety for the students at Harvest Youth. Small group leaders and members have a genuine level of concern for one another in the group. Harvest kids, teachers, and leaders have concern for the kids they're caring for. Christian parents ought to have a level of concerned anxiety for the spiritual welfare of their children. All of us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, should share a burden of concern for one another, and that should motivate us for continued labor or to continued labor for the gospel. That's a good thing. That's even something that we could say, given to us by the Lord, as that concern was given to Paul for the churches by virtue of his role. So we could say that there is a good anxiety out there in saying that there must be a sincere concern for ourselves and for one another, rooted in the gospel. Everybody with me on that? Because there is bad anxiety as well, and that's what Paul talks about here. Or what we could call crushing anxiety. In many ways, what Paul says here in verse 6 is echoing what Jesus preached on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And this anxiety is being consumed with worry or fear about things ultimately we have absolutely no control over. These kinds of anxious thoughts function as false prophets preaching to us lies about who God is, about who we are in him, about the promises that he gives to us, And to have this kind of anxiety rule your heart and your mind reveals a lack of faith and a lack of trust in God, which crushes us. It's been said elsewhere by different pastors and authors, but to live with this kind of anxiety ruling your heart and life is to live in essence like a functional atheist. Because you are giving in to believing things that are untrue. Worrying about the things that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 6, things like the future, things like what you'll eat or drink, things like like money or, or clothing, all of it takes God off the throne of your heart and puts you onto the throne of your heart. This anxiety distracts and destroys. It robs you of joy. It robs you of the peace of God that he wants to give you. It has physical effects. It has mental effects. It has relational effects. It has spiritual effects. 
And as hard as it might be to hear, we need to see the truth that to allow this kind of anxiety to take root in our hearts is sinful. It is ultimately believing things that are untrue about God. And we must treat it as such. Three times in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, do not be anxious. He goes on to say in that chapter, do you not see the, the flowers of the fields and the birds of the air and the fact that God cares for them? I mean, all of creation preaches a sermon to you. When you stand and see the reality of, of the sovereign God, creator and sustainer of all things, caring for these things, and you who are so much more valuable to him than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, can you not see that he will care for you also? Here in Philippians 4, Paul gives the command, do not be anxious about anything. And so, if you find yourself today wrestling with that crushing anxiety, I hope you see that the Lord gives you a way out. He doesn't want you to live like that. The way out from under it is prayer. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We are to pray about everything. Amen. We are to give our supplications to the Lord, our earnest pleas to God. We are to make our requests known to him with thanksgiving. We are to come before God in complete dependence on him. That, that is intrinsically what prayer is. It is you when you bow your head and your heart before the Lord saying, God, I need you. I don't have what I need on my own. I need you right now. So when you bow your head and your heart before the Lord in prayer, you are naturally proclaiming your complete dependence on him. And as Robert Rainey said, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Because I appreciate the fact that there are many things in this world that people utilize to help relieve them of anxiety. I, I, a lot of those things are good. But for believers, the ultimate thing that ought to relieve us of anxiety is prayer. Because relieving your anxiety is simple as daily communication with God. And the attitude that you're called to have when you pray is that of thanksgiving. The more you're thankful, the less you worry. The more you live in genuine gratitude to God for, for all that he's given you, for all that he's promised you, and you reflect on that and you pray in light of that, the more anxiety goes away. There is not a thing in this world that you cannot give to God in prayer. I mean, again, to come back to Matthew chapter 6 for a moment, Sermon on the Mount, in, in this chapter, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer. It's not an accident. And in the Lord's prayer, Jesus calls us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. The most basic of needs, what we need every day. We need for food. 
There's nothing more basic than that. Pray about it. Pray for what you need today. God provides for us all that we need. Martin Luther once said, pray and let God worry. And so we should. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Pray away anxiety as people with the gospel truths alive in us. And when we do, here's the incredible promise, that the peace of God that surpasses understanding, the peace of God that that sometimes makes no sense to us. You ever have that moment where, where you're in the middle of something that's really difficult, that's really challenging, that you should be worried about, that you should be anxious about, but for some reason you have so much peace about it. That's the peace of God that surpasses understanding, believer. And when you pray away anxiety, the peace of God that surpasses understanding will what? It will guard your heart and your mind. Like a soldier standing on guard on top of the wall, watching for enemies, the peace of God that comes in your life when you pray away anxiety will guard your heart, will guard your mind from the things that should cause you to be so anxious and so worried to rob you of peace and joy. Really, it's not complicated. Hear me say this in love. Prayer cures anxiety. So when you rise in the morning, when you sleep at night, pray away anxiety. God wants to give you peace about the future. God wants to give you peace about the things that you think you need that you don't have. God wants to give you peace about the things that you're afraid to lose. God will give it to you if you seek him for it. Ask, and it will be given to you, Jesus says. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Pray away anxiety. Finally, if the gospel has changed me, I will be prioritizing proper things. If the gospel has changed me, I will be prioritizing proper things. Paul wraps up this section with with practical instruction to to think about, to to set our minds on the things that he describes here in verse 8, the things that are, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's interesting that Paul starts here. He, he He goes after our thought life first. Our thought life for us is private, Right? Not even the, the people closest to us know the things that go on in our minds every single day. But the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the calling on our lives as believers, as gospel people, is that the truth of the gospel penetrates even into the deepest of our thoughts. And so we should be thinking about things that are true. And that's true by what God's word says, by the way, not by what the world says. God is truth. His word is truth. And so we should be saturating our minds with the truth and so that we are able to discern what is true and what is not. We should be thinking about what is honorable, things, things that are dignified, not things that are, that are dirty or disgusting. We should be thinking about things that are just, thinking on things that are right and good in the eyes of God because our God is a just God. We should be thinking about things that are pure, things that are holy, think, things that are 
of God in essence, thinking about things that God would love, thinking about things about, about who God is and what he does, not, not dwelling on the impurity of sin and this world, but things that are pure, thinking about things that are lovely, things that are attractable, that God loves, things that are commendable, things that are praiseworthy, as we'll see at the end of this list, things that are, 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 are worthy of being commended, commended by God and by other believers. We should be thinking about things that are excellent, meaning morally excellent, things that are virtuous to gospel people, praiseworthy things, thinking about things that we do that praise God intrinsically, that would cause others to praise him. These, these, this list, this is the filter by which we should be running all of our thoughts through, dwelling on them to ensure that we're thinking about the right things, that even what we're thinking about is glorifying God and consistent with gospel realities. And God's word is is the means by which all of this is done. God's word transforms and clarifies and cleanses our minds. The best way for this to happen, for you to prioritize proper things in your thought life, which not everyone can see, but make no mistake, God can, is for you to be saturated by God's word. The more God's word is in your mind, the more the things of God are considered in your thoughts deeply, the more you're going to see your thought life shift as it should, as the spirit leads you in this. Speaks to you, ministers to you, transforms you. Listen, this is a slow process. Anybody who's walking with Jesus for any length of time knows sanctification and God's transforming us and God's, God's shaping us to prioritize the proper things does not happen overnight. I wish it would. But the scripture must give us the lens by which we look at everything through. Scripture gives us what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, excellent things, praiseworthy things. Listen, Jesus wants your mind He wants your heart, absolutely. But when he takes your heart, he wants your mind to continually be transformed so that we, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, would take every thought captive. Why? For what? So you can obey Christ. In order that you would glorify him and live in in his wisdom, in his ways, in his will, in our lives and in the world, we are to think about, we are to consider, we are to contemplate every thought carefully to ensure that what comes into our minds, even if it doesn't come out of our mouth, even if it doesn't result in actions with our hands or our feet, Ensure that everything that even comes into our minds is under the authority of Jesus and is changed by the gospel. Then in verse 9, Paul reiterates what he said already in this letter, this, this theme of imitation, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice. Move from the thought life to the active life now. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You see, when, when you see people living like this, When you see believers living joyful no matter what, like Paul was for the Philippians, when you see people who have that spirit of gentleness in how they deal with everyone, when they're known for being gentle, when you see those people, those believers in your life that are able to have peace because they've cultivated a vibrant and active prayer life with the Lord, 
aren't worried about things, aren't, aren't, aren't filled with anxiety, when you find believers that are careful even about what they think about, certainly about what they do, imitate them. Paul's saying to, to the Philippians, imitate me as I do these things. And as you do, God will be with you. An incredible comfort for us to prioritize the proper things, that God's peace is for those who have their lives in proper priority. Those who have discipline in their thoughts and in their actions and in the craziness of this this distorted and damaged sin-sick world that we live in, proper mental and proper practical priorities bring peace to chaos. So I wonder today if, if some of the chaos in your life is because this isn't a reality for you. I wonder if some of the chaos is a reality of something that's out of step with the Lord. A thing that you haven't properly been prioritizing before him. God wants to bring you peace. God wants to bring you his peace-filled presence. If you'll order the whole of who you are under his authority. If you'll trust in Jesus who saved you. If you'll obey his commands and follow his example. To do so brings God peace, God's peaceful present, presence which impacts every part of our lives. You see, sometimes I think that we can go, we can err to the side of going too far, and I want to be careful about how I say this, so hear me carefully. We can be too concerned with legalism and our need to ensure that, that we are not in any way believing or living like we have to earn the favor and salvation of God by what we do. Sometimes we can go too far in our, in our concern about our rightful concern about being away from the prosperity gospel idea that God's going to give me whatever I want if I just do what he says, if I just follow his rules. Both of those things are important. It's equally as important for us to be preaching the the doctrines of grace and the reality that salvation comes by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. But we can miss the fact that all throughout scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike, obedience brings blessing. Show me, show me in the text, George. Okay. Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know the phrase. You know the verse. And all these things will be added to you. Peace, a lack of anxiety, God's grace, God's goodness, all of these things. If you seek first, if you see the truths of Scripture, if you see the commands of Jesus, if you obey them, listen, the blessing that we see here is God's peace comes in your life. God bestows blessings on those who obey Him. So we make that clear. In no way does your obedience save you. Your salvation motivates you to obedience. In no way does me saying, that obedience brings blessing means that God's going to give you a million dollars or a private jet. Salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. But as we pursue him, as we have our lives in proper priority, as we live in God's presence, he brings us blessing. He brings us peace. And the God of peace will be with 
you. And ultimately, isn't that what we want? God, to be with us, lead us and guide us and transform us and change us. God's word has given us practical instruction here this morning on how to live as, as gospel-centered people. In, in these things, we have joy. This is how to conduct yourself in the gospel, to be in the Lord so deeply that you drink from the unending well of his joy no matter what, to emulate the very heart of Jesus Christ in your gentleness toward others, to be devoted to prayer and to see God release you from the bonds of anxiety. He wants to do that for some of you here this morning. And to keep careful watch on your mind and your actions to ensure that you have all things in proper priority. In these things, there is joy to be found. Supernatural delight in the Lord and all that he is and has for us. And so the question I leave with you this morning is, will you commit to these things? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we long to be people that live like this. We long to be people who are filled with joy, who are gentle to everyone, who have such a committed and devoted prayer life, so focused on you and dependent on you that we're not worried about tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, you say, Jesus. We want to be people who have all aspects of our lives in proper priority, but, but we know that we're going to fail in this. We need your help. On our own, God, we're prone to despair. We're prone not to, not to rejoice, not to have joy, but to throw our hands up in the air and ask, where are you, God? We're prone to be, to heart, to be harsh with one another, to, to allow anxiety and worry to consume us. We're, we're quick, God, to, to pursue worthless and sinful things because our hearts are deceitful. We're, we're desperately sick. We all have sinned and fallen short of your glory, Father. We are weak and in need of you, so work in us, we pray, to make these things realities, to make these things true in us. Help us, Spirit, to help one another in this. To see the joy that comes from living with gospel conduct. Help us, Lord, to grow in this every day from one degree of glory to the next. We know this is a work that only you can do. But find us willing so we may glorify you and proclaim the gospel to those who desperately need it. We love you, Lord. Do this for your glory and praise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.